Today on Ag News Daily. Global energy use or global industrial use, it makes sense for that to be reflecting this fear and this sudden uh, shutdown in economic activity in the second largest economy in the globe. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here coming to you with today's edition, the coronavirus edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. I am joined, as always, by Delaney Howland. Delaney, you haven't come down with any unique uh, virus-like symptoms, have you? No, not to my knowledge. I haven't been to China anytime recently either. And you haven't eaten any snakes. Apparently that is one of the theories on where this emerged. Interesting. Nope, that's definitely not something that's going to be in my uh, diet anytime soon. Well, good. But I tell you what, apparently that was in the diet, or at least it was on offer over at the open-air meat market in Wuhan, China, here, I guess, two weeks ago on the 14th. And that spurred the outbreak of coronavirus. This is a virus that nobody has seen before. We've touched on it on the podcast before. But today really seemed to be the day that the markets took notice. We had huge sell-offs in the U.S. stock market, well, in in global equity markets, I should say. We have big sell-offs in the crude oil market. And of course, that general bearishness extended all the way into the world of agriculture. And we saw broad-based sell-offs today in the world of ag, didn't we, Delaney? Yes, we certainly did, Mike, and we're going to chat with that, chat about that with Elaine Cub here coming up for today's Market Monday segment, sponsored by agmarket.net. But we've got to talk about a little bit of other news that's hitting the pipeline as well. Yeah, what do you got, Delaney? What is the non-coronavirus news that is jumping out with you or to you today? Well, we had kind of a win, I would say, for biofuel groups, especially when dealing with the small refinery exemption waivers. We saw a ruling by the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals strike down three different small refinery exemptions and gave kind of a win in the long run for battling these biofuel mandate waivers. This came out, I believe, just this morning. But essentially, the courts said that the EPA can't extend these exemption waivers to any refineries who basically let their exemptions lapse. So there was one refinery in Cheyenne, Wyoming, that filed for a small refinery exemption waiver in 2012. They didn't apply for them in 2013 or 14, then came back in 2015 and tried to file again, got that small refinery exemption waiver, and went I don't know how long it was, and I believe it 2018 is when it uh, was brought to the courts and said, hey, this doesn't seem fair. The 10th Circuit Court indeed upheld that and said, if you didn't file continuous years, you can't have a small refinery exemption waiver. Interesting. Okay, that is a unique outlook, but this is coming from the courts. It's not coming directly from EPA, right? It's how Correct. EPA has to behave according yes, to the court. That's right. All right. Well, you know, as long as they don't put up too much of a fight, maybe this will be a turn in the, geez, three-year battle over small refinery exemptions going to uh, refiners. Yep, I think so. And like I said, it was only in three different refineries. So I don't know that this necessarily sets any precedent. And I'm sure those refineries are probably going to continue the legal battle. But uh, it does seem like we got at least a short-term win today. 
Yeah, well, that is good news. And on a day like today for producers, we're looking for any wins we can scavenge. And we've got another one uh, coming out of Europe. You know, we've talked quite a bit about the challenge facing the wheat crop around the globe. Um, we've got very, very small acres that went in the ground for winter wheat here in the U.S. We, of course, have that long-standing drought in Australia that has led to all the wildfires. We've got trouble globally, and it was just announced by the European Union Crop Monitoring Service. They call it MARS. It would probably be similar to our NAS, uh, USDA NAS. Um, they came out earlier today and said that the high temperatures that have been experienced in Western and Central Europe have left crops, particularly cereal crops, wheat and barley primarily, more prone to pests and disease. Um, the fall wheat seeding season just like ours, was hit with very heavy rain across Europe, and now they are being pummeled by high temperature, and they're saying that all of these things are coming together to lead to a potential shrink in that European wheat crop. Now, Mars didn't come out with any uh, crop size estimates today, but it was probably a piece of somewhat bullish news. And if we watch the wheat markets chart today, there was definite selling all morning, and then about the time this report was released, we did see the market climb back, still ended down on the day in Chicago and Kansas City, but was able to claw back some of its move. So I think this was generally a bullish piece of news that, uh, you know, the market needed today. And I think it sounds like it's pretty supportive. Like you said, we don't have those estimates for what the acreage is going to be or production is going to be, but it does sound somewhat friendly for the wheat markets. Absolutely. And, you know, we'll talk with Elaine about wheat and the craziness that is going on in that market. But, yeah, anything that can uh, give a win to any crop producer after today is something to be celebrated. Absolutely. Well, Mike, I'm going to take it back to the legal arena here for just a second because we had some other big news related to Bayer on Friday. We know, of course, that they are in thousands of different lawsuits right now because of their alleged exposure to Roundup causing cancer. And on Friday, the company agreed to delay a trial that was supposed to begin in state court in St. Louis, basically to allow some more mediation process. And it sounds like they really are hoping to get some sort of settlement agreement so they don't have to finish this battle in court. So we are continuing to see that um, make its way I guess, outside of the legal courtroom. Yeah, and the number I heard floated on Friday, Delaney, I don't know if you've heard this number or if we can verify it in some way, but Bayer was looking at a potential settlement of $10 billion yes. to make this thing go away. Yep, 8 to $10 billion is what they are uh, calculating for that settlement, so... Oh, boy, I forget off the top of my head what Bayer paid for Monsanto, but that would mm. not be an insignificant... Uh, percentage of no, the purchase price. I wouldn't think so. Oh, man. Well, I tell you what, as long as we're spending lots and lots of money, Delaney, there is the news coming out of Madagascar that there is a new, very expensive coffee to hit the market. Have you heard about this? this <laughs> no, is... I haven't. Please enlighten me. Well, you're not much of a coffee drinker, are you? No, I'm not. Okay, so you might never try this, but they do say it's delicious. It has a very, very smooth taste, and it is produced when bats eat the coffee bean and then spit it back out. They call it bat spit coffee, and uh, specifically it is bourbon .2 coffee. That's uh, the name of it, and it is selling for $110 per pound, Delaney Howell. That sounds disgusting. Well, 
you know, there is that uh, there is a coffee that has been around for quite some time, and I, I forget what it's called, cocoa, cokey, something, something, something. Anyway, it is made by feeding a civet, which is like a ferret, these coffee beans, and then the civets eat it. It passes through their mm. stomach, through their stomach acids that mellows the coffee out a little bit, adds some richness to the flavor, and then they harvest the coffee from the civet's feces, and then they bag it up and sell it. That sounds worse than the bat spit coffee. Yes. I think given the choice, I would absolutely drink the coffee that was spit out by a bat before I drank the coffee that was pooped mm. out by a civet. <laughs> oh, man. That's, that's uh, quite the interesting news you got there. Well, I'm just saying, for any producers who want to uh, diversify their operation, import some bats, start growing some coffee in a greenhouse, and here you go, 110 bucks a pound. Yeah, I guess so. Take advantage of it, I suppose. Right on. We are here with quality information people can use. <laughs> yes, we are. Well, I'm going to take it back to, I just have one other piece of news for today, a more serious piece than uh, your bat poop coffee. But uh, we saw the U.S., or excuse me, we saw Canada return from their long Christmas recess. And we heard Trudeau give basically their parliament uh, an address saying that the first thing now that we're back in Canadian parliament is back in session the very first priority will be moving forward on the ratification of the new NAFTA as we know President Trump is intended to sign that on Wednesday so it really does sound like that ratification process in Canada is a top priority for them and it's going to get done relatively quickly. Well that is good news once Canada signs off I believe we are rocking and rolling under USMCA. I believe so. I think it goes, yeah. I think there's like a six-month yeah. implementation um, period, and then we're rocking and rolling. Yeah, I think it's actually only 60 to 90 days. Oh, wow. Okay, so they're really going to have to move quick to uh, yeah. update all their laws and regs and open up some new trade routes. I think so. Well, fantastic. I just have one other piece of news before we have to get to the markets. And this is coming from Secretary of Ag, Sonny Perdue. You know, we have been on the back burner negotiating with the European Union on an EU-US trade deal. Um, basically, we had TTIP that we were trying to negotiate forever. I forget what that stands for, the trans-something-something partnership. Um, effectively, it was a, uh, a large trade deal with all of the EU. Now that Britain is leaving the EU, we'll probably sign a free trade agreement with them, and we're looking to address our existing agreements with the EU itself. And Sonny Perdue came out earlier today and said the European Union, quote, needs to redress a 10 to $12 billion imbalance in farm produce trade with the U.S. and adopt its food safety rules to reflect sound science. Basically, this is coming back to the EU's continued resistance in recognizing new plant trait varieties, uh, both in the cereal crops, you know, your corn and, and less so wheat, but uh, the GMO acceptability and specifically glyphosate. I think he's picking an odd time to do it as Bayer looks to settle its glyphosate lawsuits, and that's gathering up lots of headlines. But I think this is an indication that perhaps with China in the rearview mirror, with USMCA in the rearview mirror, the next big trade deal this administration is going to target looks like it is going to be with the EU, and it sounds like they're going to discuss agriculture. Yes, it, it does sound like that, too. I've seen some headlines also confirming that, Mike. So, All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on it. We'll see what comes out as these negotiations, I imagine, get underway in the next probably month to six weeks. They'll, they'll really kick off. I think you are probably right. 
Well, let's dive into the markets. They were kicked off a cliff this morning, but uh, ended up coming back okay from their losses by the end of trading. Delaney, what do you think? I think we should. And folks, as mentioned, our markets are sponsored by our partners at agmarket.net. We are giving away actually two free tickets to their upcoming conference next week in Council Bluffs, Iowa. So be sure to find us on Facebook and Twitter and go through that process of sharing and liking the post. But you can also go ahead and just sign up yourself. It's a pretty cheap conference, only $75 to attend in Council Bluffs on Tuesday, Monday and Tuesday of next week. So head to agmarket.net to find out that information. Fantastic. And yeah, check us out on Facebook. We'd love to send you for give you $150 worth of free tickets so you can learn how to manage your marketing a little bit more aggressive in 2020. Well, it's going to take aggressiveness to really capitalize on some of the volatility that is happening in the markets. As I mentioned, we've got red on pretty much every commodity today, starting with corn. The March corn contract was down six and three quarter cents to close at 380 and a half. May contract down six, finished the day at 386 and three quarters. Soybeans down, but well off their lows. The March contract dropped four and three quarter cents to close the day at 897 and a quarter. The May down four and three quarters as well, finishing at 911 even. Chicago wheat down and then back up and then finishing slightly lower. The March contract down one and a quarter cents at 572 and a quarter. May also down one and a quarter to finish at 571 and a quarter. We'll discuss the livestock markets with Elaine Cub, but we definitely had some weakness today. In April, live cattle, they were limit down, down the daily $3 trading limit to finish at 121.30. June also limit down at 113.02.50. In feeder cattle, the March declined the limit, $4.50, finishing at 135.17.5. April also limit down, closing at 138 even. And lean hogs not spared from the movement today. The April lean hog contract dropped. The daily $3 trading limit to close at 70.45 may also limit down, finishing the day at 76.97.50. Quick reminder to all of you, this means in those contracts we will see expanded daily trading limits tomorrow. It'll be 4.50 in live cattle and in lean hogs, and I believe it is $6 in feeder cattle. So that's the amount of that's the total amount those prices can move tomorrow. In milk, the January class 3 milk contract unchanged at 17.04 and the February whoof down 71 cents on the day to close at 17.29. Without further ado, let's dig into these movements with our good friend Elaine Cow. Well, for today's hashtag Market Monday interview, we are joined by Elaine Cub, author of Mastering the Grain Markets. Elaine, it's been quite some time since we've chatted with you. Fill us in. How are things up there in South Dakota? They are winter. It is, there's snow and winter and cold. It is, it is what you'd expect it to be in late January in South Dakota. Well, that is kind of, yeah, par for the course, I would suppose, when you're that far north. But, Elaine, speaking of far north, we've got prices that have moved pretty far south today across the grain complex. When you look at the movement, and let's just look at Fridays and today's, it, yeah. is this all coronavirus-related? I mean, that seems a little overcooked for the fear of something that's really killing as many people as the flu. Yes, but I, th I think that that's exactly what it is. When I look at my screen, the one that really jumps out at me is crude oil. And crude oil is down, um, I guess, only 9%, but 9%, 9%, but about $5 a barrel since 
I'm going to put January 14th as the start date of the markets really reacting to this coronavirus thing. That's when the second death occurred and when the CDC and the WHO started to uh, publicize the idea of human-to-human transmission of the coronavirus. So let's say January 14th is our baseline and take a look at how much all of your risk-on, risk-off sort of commodities that respond to these global uh, risky ideas uh, have behaved since then. And like I said, you've got crude oil down 9%. You've got soybeans down only 5%. But daily in soybeans, so the China soybean futures, those are down 11%. Um, copper's down 10%. You know, all of these commodities that respond to these ideas of the global economy having a big shock, they have really come down in this time frame. But I think you're also right, Mike, to point out that it might be overcooked. Uh, but it's hard to say. I mean, I think what, right, right now, yeah, you've just got traders uh, seeing that fear, not wanting to have that risk on the board. And so they're selling off lots of things, things that don't even really make sense, like feeder cattle should not necessarily respond to a coronavirus problem. And yet I think that's exactly what's going on is just a risk off movement across the board for commodities. I mean, I hate to say this, but it really feels like, Elaine, we're just moving from one headline to the next, trading whatever headline is out or is biggest for the day or the week. Well, I know it feels like that, but I think um, let's let's look at soybeans specifically. The the market seems to have been a little bit rational about the way it responded to the, the phase one trade deal. You know, it didn't immediately rally a dollar because we have not really seen any physical movement of those soybeans that we haven't really seen basis improve, for instance. So the market is still reflecting the physical reality. But in this case, in this coronavirus case, it's just reflecting the fear. Like the fear is real. And the fact that the Chinese government is going to extend the the New Year's holiday and there's just not going to be very much economic activity going on this week anyway because of the New Year holiday, but that will be extended and everything's locked down, that really does cut down on their economic activity. So to that extent, it is rational for crude oil, which is a, a benchmark for global energy use or global industrial use. It makes sense for that to be reflecting this fear and this sudden uh, shutdown in economic activity in the second largest economy in the globe. Well, Elaine, you know, you mentioned the slip in crude oil. Of course, it has corresponded with, well, the slip in everything, as you've talked about. But I've heard specific concerns that this drop in crude oil, if the demand in China stays low and we see crude continue to stay low, we're going to continue to see erosion of profitability for ethanol plants, which could hurt corn demand. What are your thoughts there when you look out for the remainder of the year when it comes to demand for, well, corn demand for ethanol? Absolutely. So these markets are all tied together. That's a very good point. And this crude oil, you know, we're not necessarily below the September lows or the October low prices. So, and so this is still recoverable and it's certainly recoverable if we move past the the lunar new year holiday and it turns out the coronavirus wasn't, you know, it has been handled or it has been contained or it is not going to kill off too many people and the economy can get back to its usual um, source, then then these prices should recover pretty well and ethanol won't receive a big ding. If this is just a temporary freak out by the market, I wouldn't expect to see ethanol prices or ethanol profitability have such a huge ding. But if it becomes a more extended thing, um, then that's a big problem. And I haven't looked at ethanol losses since this January 14th, but they're certainly down today. Uh, I've got a dollar thirty per gallon for ethanol futures. February ethanol futures. So they're down, but they're not reacting. Even 
even as strongly as corn is reacting, they're just not seeing the volume of futures trade to, to have that bearish reaction yet today. Elaine, as you look at the chart, let's talk March corn in particular. Are we heading back down to touch some of those previous lows we put in back in, you know, mid-December, the 370-ish level? Yeah, um, you know, corn has been, if you look at chart-wise, it's been obviously so flat through the month of December and the first half of January. So to have it come down six cents today, that looks big on a daily chart, but on a weekly chart or on just sort of a pattern basis, it still is pretty well in its neutral trading range. So it's, you know, and justifiably so, it's been a little more resilient to some of these risk-off ideas. But when you do have energy prices going down, ethanol prices going down, and of course it's it's traditional price relationship to soybeans, it does have to come down in relationship. So at this point, it's still, you know, it's still 10 cents away from there and um, 10, 20 cents away from it from its uh, December lows. So I wouldn't worry too much about corn um, in relationship to some of the other commodities. Well, Elaine, before we move off corn and start talking soybeans, do you have any thoughts yet this spring on what corn acres might look like as we roll into the planting season of 2020? Oh, boy. What I mean, what is the conventional wisdom these days? 95 million acres? Yeah, 90, 94 to 96, I think, is kind of where folks are, are throwing out their numbers. I don't know. It might be a little bit overstated because I think so much of the thinking process that went into that 95 or 94 or 96 million acre number was based on the uh, unattractive soybean prices, right? And that's absolutely yeah. true. And that's certainly true today. We've got soybean futures below $9. And so that pushes everybody back into corn again for 2020. However, if, like I mentioned, we can get past this freak out in the market if we do start to see physical buying from China, and if we do start to see a serious recovery in soybean prices, then that acreage game, it's all back up in the air. It could certainly swing back the other way. Um, you know, there was a lot of corn acres in 2019, and there has always been the traditional idea that folks like to have, uh, you know, you like to go 50-50, or you like to have a rotation and get the soybeans in there for their nitrogen fixing and have that rotation of putting some legumes in after the cereal grain. So if there was less of a problem in the soybean market, I think time will, we've got we've got time. We've got the month of February and certainly the month of March for the market to, to come in here and bid those acres up. Elaine, from uh, what it sounds like, obviously, as you mentioned there, the corn and soybean markets and wheat kind of all move together when moon moves up, the others move up. But it, it sounds like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like the soybean market is really what we're going to have to bank on here to pull corn and wheat up with it. Yeah, and this is going back to the headlines of a couple of weeks ago of this trade deal. You know, if we can get the soybean um, export movement normalized, where you start to see actual physical movement of soybeans out of the Pacific Northwest and a recovery in the Western basis, which is still quite weak compared to history, if you can see that physical movement actually occur, some documentation of this actually changing, the basis changing, then yes, I think that changes everything, not only for soybean prices, but as Mike was asking about the acreage, it starts to change the acreage number and it starts to change the bearishness that is lingering in the corn market because of that big 2020 acreage number. So yes, I think it all depends on this freakout getting through the market, the Lunar New Year wrapping up, seeing what kind of business really does come in from the soybean or the Chinese soybean buyers once this has all passed through. 
Well, let's talk before we move on to the livestock markets, Elaine. Let's chat about the wheat market. Chicago wheat was on a tear for quite a while. We got problems in Australia. We got problems in the Black Sea. We've got the potential for Argentina to quit selling crops altogether on the 31st or quit exporting, I should say. Um, it seems like here over the past week or 10 days, that market is really starting to pull back quite a bit. Was this a situation where the market just got a little oversold and now we've got some folks taking profits? The wheat markets are a mess right now. If you look at you know what one wheat price should be compared to the other, they are just a disaster. You've still got Chicago wheat higher price than Minneapolis wheat, which based on a protein or just the fundamental value of that actual crop makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. So any of these pullbacks that you mentioned, you, know, you see a sudden snapback in the price it could just exactly it could be profit taking from folks who are doing some intermarket wheat spread trading. It could be um, yeah buy the rumor sell the fact based on those rains in Australia, which you know doesn't really do much for the crop. But again, it could be headline based trading. Yeah, it's it's really hard to say, and it's absolutely impossible to pinpoint um, the correct let's say let's this statistically arbitrage basis uh, correct price for any of these wheat markets right now because they are just so far off of their historical norms. Elaine, I want to take things over to the livestock market. Live cattle in particular, you mentioned that the coronavirus is having an effect on all the commodity markets, but do you see this of impacting live cattle and, and turning us to the downside here? I mean, we finished, you know, 122 on the chart, so are we heading down or is this just going to be a correction based off of that headline? Well, I think it should just be a, a headline-based blip. Yeah, we've got limit down in, in the two of the live cattle contracts and limit down in the feeder cattle contracts. And like I mentioned, there's absolutely no reason for, uh, you know, a human virus in China to be affecting feeder cattle prices in the United States. You've also got trade coming in after the fr Friday's cattle on feed report, but it wasn't necessarily bearish. It was in line with expectations. And it's showing placements were a little higher than last year at this time. It's showing the inventory is 2% higher than last year at this time. This was not hugely bearish. And there was still evidence of, you know, appetite for, for calves to be brought into the feedlot. So I don't think this bearish reaction could be based, could be blamed on the cattle on feed report. I think instead we need to look at the really high volume of trade that's going on in the feeder cattle futures market right now and the live cattle futures market the last few days. And that high volume really uh, tips me off that it is fund-based traders or, you know, speculative traders that are just selling commodities broadly because of this headline, because of the coronavirus. And they're going in there and having an outside influence in a fairly small otherwise volume uh, traded commodity market. And I think that's why we're seeing these limit down prices. There's limit down prices in a couple of the, the hog contracts, too, and I suppose that the you could make an argument that the cattle are going down in sympathy with the hogs, but and it, and it's, it's hard to, to really know whether the, um, the cash market and the cattle side, anyway, is going to play along with that. It's too, still too early in the week. Last week, the cash prices stayed pretty stable. I looked at some of the, the, the livestock sale barns, you know, from calf trade uh, last Thursday, those numbers were still 145 and above. They have not fallen apart the way that the futures trade has fallen apart here just today. So it does seem to me that the futures trade, these huge losses that we're seeing today, kind of make no sense and hopefully will just be a blip. 
Now, Elaine, given the fact that it is always dangerous to catch a falling knife, what are your thoughts, given that this could be overdone based on aggressive fund selling coming in very quickly, trying to capitalize on a fear-based reaction, what are your thoughts on getting long feeder cattle, fat cattle, and potentially hogs here in this environment? I wouldn't personally. So if this was just me giving trading advice, I wouldn't step in on that hog market because uh, this could be a more lasting influence or it could be more um, more justified to have the bearishness in the hog prices. But this feeder cattle losses, we've done it 135 on the March feeder cattle contract. When I mentioned the cash prices, the cash index is more like 145 right now. And I don't think that that's going to change this week as, as the sale barn business goes on this week. So I think there is more opportunity for a serious correction in that feeder cattle market. And if I was just making a trading recommendation, that would be the one where I think you have a little more confidence stepping in and getting long. All right. Well, Alinka, before we let you go, let folks know how they can get a hold of you on social media or otherwise. Yeah, I always like to hear from folks on Twitter. It's at Elaine Cub, and Cub is spelled with a K, K-U-B. Um, I'm also online. You can look for my book, Mastering the Grain Markets, or ElaineCub.com. Awesome. Elaine, thanks so much for joining us to Chat Markets today. Well, it has been quite a day, so thanks, thanks for inviting me. Well, a huge thanks to Elaine Cub. Always appreciate her insight, Delaney. It's great to hear from somebody out there on the high plains, isn't it? It certainly is. Getting some uh, perspective from a South Dakotan. Is that the right verbiage for that? Yeah, I think so. I think that's exactly how you'd say it. I believe they are South Dakotans rather than South Dakotaites. But whether you are a South Dakotaite, a North Dakotan, or a whatever, you can get caught up on all the past episodes of Ag News Daily by visiting our website at agnewsdaily.com. Check out our past episodes. Get connected with the other podcasts on the Global Ag Network. And, of course, folks, visit us on social media. Check it out right now. Share, uh, like, and share the tweets and the Facebook posts from agmarket.net to register yourself for a free pair of tickets to go to their conference next week in Council Bluffs. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.